privilege for us, great honour that you would choose to spend this public holiday here, uh, celebrating and understanding the significance of Good Friday with us. I have a confession to make, and the confession is, um, as I have wrestled with this passage, I find that I cannot understand. Uh, there's no way anything in my experience so far uh, comes close to understanding what Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane has gone through. I mean, you see him in such great agony. I have suffered, uh, you know, if you like, my fair share of uh, male Singaporeans, trials and tribulation, but nothing in what I have gone through comes even close to what Jesus is going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I, I confess that uh, I cannot, with my own experience, share from this passage. So I guess, like me, we are but observers coming and seeing this man going through this agony, which I think is unique. So he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, the place is a familiar place for Jesus and his disciples. They spend uh, many, many moments here in the garden, in its uh, seclusion and quiet, where they fellowship together, they laugh together. Jesus was teaching them and they uh, you know, got to know each other. They grew in their relationship. But there would be no laughing tonight. There would be no teaching tonight. Because this night is the night before Good Friday. The Good Friday where Jesus would be delivered up to die on a Roman cross. In fact, by the time this story ends, it might even be the early morning of uh, the Good Friday itself. You know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. already. So it is just before his death. And we see him in the garden and we see him saying in verse 33, Mark tells us he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Okay, he was deep, he was in deep distress. He was, he was undergoing great sorrow. And he says to the disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. There is a great agony of soul that Jesus is going through. And the question is, why? Why is he going through such great agony? And if you make the connection that, yes, this is the night before Good Friday, or even the morning of Good Friday itself, then you will conclude that, oh, it's because he knows that he's going to the cross soon. In just a matter of a few hours, he would be there. And this is not something that would have caught Jesus by surprise because many times in his ministry, he made numerous predictions to his disciples, to the crowd, that this is where he would end up. That's why he resolutely set his face to enter Jerusalem because he knows he must go to Jerusalem. He knows he must face death and face it on a cross. But having said that, it raises even more questions. Because, okay, okay, so he knows he's going to die, and that's why he's in such agony. But, hey, I've read of people, or I've seen people who 
have faced death with greater poise. I've seen people, I've read of people who have faced death with greater joy. I mean, even the disciples that he's talking to in the garden, the disciples that, you know, could not wait with him and they were too sleepy, they fell asleep. I mean, these disciples, many years later, when they faced their own death, because they uh, would not back down and continue to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the true king. And, and, and the Roman Empire persecuted them. And some of them died horrific deaths. Peter, the you know, chief disciple, he was crucified upside down. And the way these disciples went to the cross, they went with calm. And I mean, some of them were even singing hymns. And even Christians down the ages met their death with greater poise and, uh, you know, collectedness. So is this a case of, you know, the disciple surpassing the master? Why is Jesus knowing his death is imminent? Why, why, why is he going through such great agony? Why is he facing his death with such great trouble and sorrow and horror? And the answer is because of what he knows he's going to go through. And what he knows he's going to go through is captured for us in the heart of his prayer. So he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is not seeking comfort from his disciples. Yes, he asked them to come, asked them to pray, but it is more for their own sake. He is seeking his comfort by going to God the Father. And going to God the Father, we see him praying in verse 36. It is a prayer that he prays three times. Three times he prays this prayer. In verse 36, he says, Abba, Father. It's a bit like saying, Papa. It's a very intimate term. And at this time of his great agony and sorrow, he, he goes to the Father and says, Abba, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So why is Jesus facing his imminent death? With such great agony or soul, it is because he knows he will be drinking this cup. And this cup is a familiar image. It is a familiar metaphor. It is the the wrath of God poured out on human rebellion. The cup is a metaphor of God's anger, His, His divine justice being poured out on human injustice. It is a cup of wrath that the wicked must drink. It is a cup of wrath that the rebellious must drink. Now, when I mention this notion of God being angry, being wrathful, that God must punish rebellion, that God must punish sin, that this God is wrathful, I mean, it may, you know, make some of you think, oh, yo, here we go again, you know, talking about this God who is angry. I mean, such a primitive notion. I mean, I mean, don't we all believe in a God who is loving now? I mean, this is the 21st century. I mean, I prefer to think of a God who is loving, 
who loves, who, you know, he just loves us. Why talk about him being wrathful and anger and, you know, needing to, to pour his justice on, on, on human injustice? Why not just talk about his love? Okay, okay, let's, okay, let's talk about love. Okay, let's talk about love. Let's talk about, okay, let's talk about us. Let's talk about the things that we love. Okay, so let's say you love children. I mean, just, just pick the thing that, you know, works for you. No, I mean, not everyone here loves children equally. But some of you, I'm sure you, you love children. Okay, I mean, you, you see little kids playing in the playground and, you know, it brings a smile to you. You know, you, 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 there's a yearning to protect them. There's a the love for them. You know, there's a responsibility that society should care for them. You know, there's a love for children. Okay, if it's not children, then, you know, pick some other thing. Uh, so let's say you love children. And if you read in the newspapers that there has been this childcare center, no, not this one, okay, heaven forbid, not this one, okay, but some other childcare center where the principal has been systematically over a period of nine months abusing the children in that childcare center. And you're someone who loves children. Okay. What are you thinking? What are you feeling when you read that newspaper article? I mean, you would feel a sense of rage. You will feel a sense of, okay, no, justice must be done. You will say, okay, I hope this principal does not get away. I hope he doesn't hire some swanky lawyer that gets him out of prison. I hope that, you know, the prosecutor will be able to press on him the fullest extent of the law. Right, that's what you would be thinking, that's what you would feel if you love children and you read of this, 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 this tragic thing that has happened to children, this, this unspeakable thing that has happened to children. You would feel, you would feel some degree of wrath. And so if you, you know, one human being with some small amount of love in you. You can know it's right, feel it's right, that when you see some great injustice done to something, someone, some people that you love, that no, they must be punished. The person who is responsible for this must face the fullest extent of the law. So if you, in your little love, can feel that, then what about the God that we all proclaim to be so loving? Yes, He is indeed loving. He is more loving than you and I can ever imagine. And so because He loves and He loves so greatly His creation, His creatures, and so when great harm is done to His creatures, when great harm is done to His creation, this God who is so full of love, his natural reaction is wrath as well. And so there is this cup of wrath that God is going to pour out. And each one of us, we deserve to drink this cup. We deserve to have this cup of wrath poured out on us. Why? Because we have treated the things, the people that God loves horrendously. Now you might 
be thinking at this moment, I know some people do that, but not me. I try to live, you know, a peaceful life, a good life, you know, do unto others what you want others to do. You know, I try to live by that principle. I'm not this person that that deserves God's wrath because I've I've tried to live a good life. Okay, let me ask you whether the child in this next story is a good child or a bad child. Okay, so this child that I'm going to describe in this story, is he a good child or a bad child? So this child, okay, I mean, okay, this son, okay, this son, uh, since my son was playing the drums, I'll use, okay, this, this son, this is a good son, okay? Is he a good son or a bad son? Okay, so this son, he is, he is straight A student. Oh, see now, in Singapore, that's, that's worth a lot. He's a straight A student and he is class president. And he is captain of his school's championship hockey team. He keeps his room tidy. You never have to nag him to pick up the clothes from the floor. You never have to nag him to to wash his own dishes. He does all of that without being told. Sounds like a good son, right? But there's more. There's more to the story. This son of yours when you overhear him talking on the phone with his friends, he always, always speaks of you as if you had already died. And, and, and when, you, when you bump into him in the corridor, he always, always averts his eyes. He doesn't acknowledge you. He doesn't look at you. He doesn't talk to you. When you talk to him, he does not answer. And it's not because you have been a bad parent. It's not, it's not as if you have been negligent. You have been a good, you have been a better parent than any parent you know. You have provided, you have nurtured, you have given him all that he needs, and yet, he speaks of you as if you had already died. He, he lives without reference to you. See, he sounds like a good son because he does all these things. But actually, there's no parent in the world that would say, no, that's, a good son. Actually, he's a bad son. Because I've not done anything wrong. I've not done anything against him. And yet, he, he does not give me the respect. He does not give me the honor, the filial piety that I deserve as his parent. And so we, yes, we may do many good things. We may not deliberately do harm or evil or wicked against someone else. But every one of us, we live in God's world. The world that God has graciously made and provided. We have our every breath given by this God. And yet we live without reference to this God. This God is not number one in our lives as He should be. This God, because of who He is, that He has made us, that He has created us, He has given us everything. He deserves to be in the first place. He deserves to be on the throne of our lives, but we have kicked this God out from that throne. We have not allowed God to be God. We have not honored this God as God. We have rebelled. We have gone against this God. And so because we have gone against a God who is majestic, infinite, holy, His just, Righteous, 
response is to pour out his wrath on us. But because this God, as we have already maintained, is love. This is a loving God. He has not just left us to this reality. He has sent his son. He has given of his son. And here we see his son, the God-man Jesus Christ, in agony in the garden. And he's in agony because what he is about to face is not just a death that would be like yours or mine, a death like would be the, the disciples when they are martyred. He is going to be facing the drinking of the wrath of God so that those of us who deserve it will not have to. God wants to save. God wants His people to be reconciled to Him. But there is this chasm because we have rebelled and we deserve His wrath. And so Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they come up with this plan and the Son lovingly, obediently to the Father comes and says, yes, I will drink the cup for them, the cup of God's wrath. And so here in the garden, that, 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 that reality is before Jesus. In a matter of hours, he is going to be drinking of that cup. And so the human nature of Jesus is, 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 is staggering at that reality. Okay. It's not just a, it's not just a physical death. It's not just a pain. It's not just a torture. It is the drinking of the wrath of God down to his drag so that there is not even a drop left so that his people will not have to face the wrath they deserve. And so Jesus asked God, Abba. See, it's this moment of great agony. There's still this intimacy. Everything is possible for you. For you. You, everything is possible. Take this cup from me. See, three times Jesus prayed this. God, you are the God for whom everything is possible. Take this cup. I mean, how... How would you, if you are a parent, <clears throat> if your son, the son that you love, your only son, your son comes to you and your son says, Dad, I'm dying here. Can you do something about this? You, you, you have the power to do something about this. Can you, can you do something? I'm just dying here. Please, please help me. Now, every father in this room, Yes, yes, if it is within my power, I will do it, son. Yes, I, I, I don't want to see you going through this. I do not want you to, 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 to have to face this. If it is within my power, I will do it. And three times, the son prays this before the father. And the answer is, the answer is silence. And the answer is silence because even though everything is possible for this God, but for the love of God to reach its aim of saving and reconciling His people back to Himself, there is no other way. The Son must drink the cup. 
And so the human nature of Jesus is, is, is staggering. But still he is obedient. He staggers, but he does not sin. He staggers, but he resolves. So he says, yet not my will, but yours. There are two things we must see in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first thing we must see is we must see the reality of our sin. We must see the reality of how hideous and horrendous our rebellion against God is. Because we have not lived with Him as God. He deserves to be God. He deserves to be worshipped and thanked and honoured as God. But we have lived our own lives. We have sought to be centre of the universe ourselves. And it is because each one of us, without exception, each one of us, we have done this, we have done this blatantly, we have done this high-handedly, we have done this in our ignoring of Him, we have done this in the blatant going against His laws. But we have done this. And it is because of the reality of our sin that the reality of His wrath is there. And the reality that Jesus, in order to save God's people, has to drink this cup for us. So we must see, the first thing, the reality of our sin. Second thing we must see is the reality of His love. And the reality of His love is shown in Jesus, even as He knows He's going to go through this. He staggers, but he resolves to do God's will. He is willing to endure this. And he is willing to endure this for the sake, not of good and righteous people. He is willing to endure and go through this for us who have rebelled, we who are rebels, we who are enemies, we who are sinners. He shows his love in that he is willing to go through this even for us. And there's something else I want to say here. Why at this point, Jesus goes through such great agony? When before, when he predicts that he would die, and when he predicts that he would die, he, he does it with such calm purpose. But why in the garden, he, he, he goes through such great sorrow, such great agony, such great trouble. And the reason is because even though he knew and he predicted, but something else was happening in the garden. In order for us to know the full extent of Jesus' love, in order to know that Jesus went to the cross, not just willingly, but he went to the cross willingly and with full knowledge of what he had to endure as sin bearer. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you like the, the picture, the furnace of God's wrath, for the first time is open up. And at the garden, he sees and he sees clearly what he has to endure, what he has to go through in order to drink this wrath 
the cup of wrath for the sake of God's people that they may be reconciled. He sees clearly for the first time exactly what it means, what it would mean for him to drink the cup of God's wrath. So that when he goes to the cross, on Good Friday itself, when he is at the cross and when the wrath of God is poured out on him, it is not someone who, oh, I didn't know it would be this bad. Yes, 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 I wanted to rescue, but, but I had no idea it would be this bad. No. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that furnace is open. The fires of God's wrath is clear for Jesus to see, and that's why he staggers. That's why there's this great agony. But still, he says, not my will, but yours. And indeed, several hours later, he is at the cross. And the wrath of God is poured out on him, and he has died the death that we deserve. He has completely satisfied God's wrath on our rebellion. Because he has drank the cup of God's wrath for us. I want to take us to another part of the Bible. You don't have to turn to it. Uh, It is a familiar one. But because Jesus has drunk this cup for us, there is in store for us who will receive this gift. There is for us those who will receive this finished work. See, it's not just something that is done and it is automatically applied to us. No, no, we have to come to Jesus with open hands and say, Lord, there's nothing I can do, nothing I can offer, but with open hands I receive the gift of salvation you have accomplished. And when we do that, there is another cup that we get to drink instead. And it's a cup that's referred to in Psalm 23. Where the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This cup that is full of your goodness and love that will follow me all the days of my life. And because I now drink this cup, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, there's two cups before you. The one that you deserve to drink is the cup of God's wrath because of your rebellion. But if you receive with open hands, with thankfulness, what Jesus on the cross has drunk to his dregs for you, there is another cup. The one filled with goodness and love. The one that has the Lord as your shepherd. Indeed, the shepherd that loves us so much 
he was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. It's one or the other. Which will you drink from? May God help us to choose rightly.